Good morning, church. Let the Lord reign in me again. What a beautiful prayer that is, and uh, one that goes to the very heart of who we are. I hope that in this moment I can be as clear and as concise as Kyle was in his announcement. He did a great job, and that was. I wasn't confused at all. I don't know what he was talking about, but I wasn't confused at all. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but seriously, uh, it's great to be with you. I appreciate the invitation to be here. And uh, what a wonderful time of singing and worship and communion uh, we've had already. I want to begin with Second Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 8 to 10. And then I'm going to go to chapter 9 and read verses 13 to 15. Because I think these are kind of the two bookends of what Paul is trying to do. But before we read that, I want to ask you a question. How do you persuade a group of people who have a long-standing suspicion and anger toward another group of people who live thousands of miles away, who are a different race, who one is wealthy and the other is poor. How do you persuade the wealthy Greeks and Romans in Corinth to help the impoverished Jews in Jerusalem, Jewish believers in Jerusalem. How do you do that? How do you persuade them? How do you try to persuade them to let go of some of their wealth, what they've earned for themselves, what they're going to use for their families, what's important to them? How are you going to persuade them, these Greco-Roman Europeans, you might say, to give to this group of Jewish believers, whom we've always were suspicious of these Jews. We don't know how they're going to use it. We know their history. They have no respect for them. How am I going to persuade a group of people to share their wealth? I mean, we all know that internal dynamic, don't we? Of being asked to share wealth with another. The internal dynamic of, well, why should I share with them? Or how much should I share with them? Or what good would it do to share with them? That kind of dynamic's going on in these Corinthians' mind. Because in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, you'll remember this text, right? That now concerning the collection. Maybe you've heard that one read over the years, every Sunday in some form or fashion. That now concerning the collection, in other words, somebody's asked Paul a question about this. Paul, what are we supposed to do with this collection? This money you're raising for the poor saints in Jerusalem, what what are we supposed to do about that? How do we do that? Paul says, well, make this arrangement. Use this arrangement. Every first day of the week, you put together something 
out of your own resources, and when I come, I'll collect it. In other words, it'll be ready when I come. And what we've done with that text is we've used it to say, oh, Paul's commanding every church everywhere through all time to give every first day of the week. But that's not what Paul's doing there. He's answering a question for the Corinthians. And he's suggesting something that they're not already doing. Right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have to ask the question. If Paul had come to Corinth and planted a church and said, now part of every church needs to be a Sunday morning collection or Sunday night collection, whatever the time of day was. Paul, I think, would have told him that when he planted the church, right? But they're asking a question, well, how are we going to do this? Now, you see, the Corinthians, though, begin to have second thoughts about that collection. We don't know why they have second thoughts. They're hesitant in some way. We could speculate, but we don't really know. But Paul uses two chapters, what we call chapters, in 2 Corinthians to persuade them. Listen to part of those two chapters. But since you excel, this is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. But since you excel in everything, I like the way Paul is just kind of polishing them up a little bit. You know, you're doing well at everything. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Going down to chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, that is, if you participate in this giving, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you catch it? I'm not commanding you. I'm not going to command you. This is your choice. I'm not going to push this on you like some kind of regulation or rule. But when you do contribute, <laughs> the church, will, will God, God will be praised and this will be a testimony of your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ. Oh, wait a minute. How does that work? 
I'm not going to command you, but I'll be grateful for your obedience. What's up with that? I'm not going to command you, but we'll be grateful for your obedience. You see, we think of obedience as primarily in terms of, give me the rule and I'll obey it. You know, just show me the rule. Now, I love God, and I'm, I'm confessed Jesus Christ, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. You show me the rule, and I'll do it. And that's how we tend to think about obedience is in those kinds of categories. But Paul is telling us something different here. He's, he's, he's saying, I'm not going to command you, but I'll be grateful for your obedience. What kind of dynamic is that? It's because we are so, we are so devoted to Jesus and our allegiance is to God and his kingdom that, that we look for the rules because we want to make sure we don't miss any. We want to do what God says. We want to obey the rules. Nothing wrong with that. But I want to suggest to you that, that maybe there's something deeper going on than just the rules, whatever rules they may be. And this, in this text, is not a rule. I am not commanding you. But something deeper is going on. And Paul tells us exactly what it is. He doesn't leave them in doubt. He doesn't say, well, go meditate on that a while, see if you can figure it out. No, he he tells them exactly what it is. It's about grace. You can't tell in your English translations. You try to count it up in your English translations, any of them, (laughs) you won't see it. Because even that last verse, thanks be to God. Really what Paul says, grace be to God. That's what he says. Grace be to God. Because Paul uses the word grace ten times in these two chapters. That's the highest concentration of the word grace in all the New Testament. He uses it ten times. And he basically says, God has graced you so that you can participate in God's grace by gracing others. And the others then will grace God by giving thanks. It is a dynamic of grace. Because we have received grace from God, we share grace with others who then return that grace to God with praise and thanksgiving. That's the dynamic that Paul is appealing to here. He doesn't appeal to a rule. He appeals to the sort of people we are to become. The people who are so filled with God's grace that you don't have to persuade us to share grace with others. Because we know that grace will return to God's own glory as he is praised and given thanks for that grace. And Paul gets pretty specific about this. He says, you know the kind of grace I'm talking about, right? It's the kind of grace that though he was rich, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I know your translation might say generous or something like that, but it's the word grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ The one, though he was rich, became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. 
that that is the key. That's the fundamental story we believe. We confess that God became human, that God in God's glory and grace and mercy and in the richness of who God is became poor for our sake so that we might share in the riches of God's grace, in the riches of God's glory, that we might participate in that life. And Paul said, now do you believe that story? Because that's the gospel. And remember what Paul said was that we'll give thanks for your obedience. And you remember what the line was? Your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ. In other words, when I share my resources with others who need them, I'm obeying the gospel. Not because the gospel has a list of rules, but because the gospel is embodied in what God did in Christ by the Spirit. And the one who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. That's the gospel. And when we obey the gospel, that means we conform ourselves to that story. We locate ourselves in that story. We become that story in the present for the sake of others. We become people who let go of our resources for the sake of the other so that the other might have what they need. And when they have what they need, they will praise God. Paul even uses the story of manna. He doesn't ignore the whole of Scripture. In fact, he brings in Israel's Scripture. He brings in the Hebrew Bible. He says, you remember the story of manna? You know, God gave manna to Israel. You remember how he gave it? He gave it so that no one had too little and no one had too much. Which is a way of saying to the Corinthians, you have an abundance. And one of the things God is doing in the world is so that and part of the, the role of the people of God is to make sure that among the people of God especially, no one has too little and no one has too much. So you Corinthians, you wealthy European Corinthians need to share with these poor and impoverished Jerusalem believers. He also appeals to the Hebrew Bible when he quotes Psalm 112. Now, he does that in chapter 9. Right after he alludes to Deuteronomy 15, he's filled this with Scripture. You know, it, it's, Scripture's all over the place here. You remember the line, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Don't, don't give grudgingly. That comes out of Deuteronomy 15. But he gives an explicit quotation of Psalm 112. That the righteous person scatters, scatters their gifts to the poor. Now, maybe that we don't, we don't catch that one as well because we're not as well versed in the Psalms as Jewish believers would be in the first century. They prayed the Psalms every day. The synagogue was a prayed the Psalms every day. Even today, Jewish believers pray the Psalms every morning in their synagogue. They're saturated with the Psalms. So all Paul has to do is just quote a line or two out of it, and they all go, oh, we know that Psalm. And Psalm 112 begins with, blessed is the person who. 
And it talks about how merciful they are, how they fear no evil, and they scatter their gifts to the poor. So Paul appeals to the Hebrew scriptures to say, this is the sort of person you should be. Now, why should they be that sort of person? Because it's a rule? No, because it's like God. Because Psalm 111 is a psalm about who God is. And if you put 111 and 112 side by side, I encourage you to do that sometime. You'll see that there's a lot of language that's similar. In other words, Psalm 112 says, Psalm 111 says, this is who God is. Psalm 112 says, be like God. Blessed is the person who is like God. You know, I wish, there's a part of me, I should say, that, I, that wishes that God had just given us a nice, neat rule, right? Share 10% of your income with other people. Don't spend any more than 25% of your income on your housing. No more than 15% on your food. I mean, you know, as a believer in Christ and as one who wants to submit to what God has told us, if that rule was there, I'd just say, yes, sir. And I'd do the rule. That would be, to my mind, easy. I'd figure out a way to obey the rules. But that's not what God did, is it? Instead, God gave us a story that says, you know, the one who was rich became poor so that those who are poor might become rich. Live that story. And I'm going, oh, that's a lot harder. That is, that's why Paul says, I want to test the integrity of your love. I'm not going to give you a rule. That won't tell me much. You might obey it out of fear. You might obey it out of reward. You might, no, I I want to get at your integrity. I want to get at your heart. I want to get at, what do you really believe? What are you really committed to? Do you believe the story? If you believe that God's indescribable gift to us is Jesus Christ who was rich but became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. If you believe that story, I want you to wrestle with whether you're giving or not. I don't want you to just have a rule and say, okay, I'll do that. I want you to wrestle with your heart in the presence of God and in the presence of what God has done and wrestle with our heart according to what we've been prospered and share what you have so that those who do not have enough have what they need. Even if I have to sell something to get it there. That's the story of the early church. They brought their property to sell in order that they, remember the statement in Acts 4? So that no one had need. Wow. That calls, that's a great, that's a, it's a chilling demand. It's a chilling call on our hearts. So when Paul wants to persuade them to share their resources with that different ethnic group that they have hated for so long, that they have been suspicious of for so long, there's a lot of literature about how The Greeks and Romans 
despised Jews. And now Paul says, I want you to take your wealth and I want you to supply their need out of your abundance. How does Paul persuade them? He doesn't say, I want you to give every week. Just do that. No. I want you to give 10%. No, he doesn't say that. What he says is, I want you to give like Jesus gave. I want you to live in that story. Brothers and sisters, that's tough. And it's hard to wrestle with our hearts, to know, to have some wisdom. That's where wisdom comes in, right? To apply that. To have some wisdom. To share what we have with others who don't have. How much to share, when to share, who to share it with. That takes wisdom. But it is a call that is laid upon us because we believe this story. If we believe that God who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich and that we are called to imitate him, we are called to be like him, that is our pattern The pattern is not 10%. Oh, it's much more than that. Because Jesus gave it all. I had a little quote on my Facebook page the other day about loving your neighbor more than yourself. And someone responded to that and said, you know, I don't love my, we ought to love neighbor and self equal. I didn't respond to it. I thought, I'll just let that go. But if Jesus is our story, does God, does Jesus love his neighbor more than himself? I'll let you answer that question. That's our pattern. We could stack up a bunch of rules, but it won't mean anything if we don't follow that pattern with the wisdom God gives us by the presence of the Spirit. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all.